Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek, but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields, all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there, and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Jack Thomas. He studied nuclear engineer engineering and is now a nuclear engineer turned nomad uh, and was is also deep into philosophy. He wanted to start a philosophy club, and we connected in a WhatsApp group about that. And uh, went on a long park in the walk. I'm sorry, a long walk in the park. And Buenos Aires has a lot of amazing parks down here, and uh, so it was a very interesting conversation. So I thought I'd invite him onto the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. So welcome to the show. My pleasure. Uh, as I said before, we started uh, kind of coming in blind, but uh, I'm really excited to to engage in the conversation and uh, yeah, to see what ideas we come up with. Cool. Uh, it's that's usually my favorite. Uh, ways to interview people is them never having been on a podcast before me know, knowing nothing about them them knowing nothing about me uh, that's usually the way that I love to interview uh, podcast guests I know there's a there's a long history of people saying that the best interviewers are people who have studied their interviewee uh, very very um, devotedly and I, I could see that for somebody who's like done a lot of interviews already and like, if they've already done a lot of interviews, then they essentially are repeating themselves a lot. And so you want to make sure that you give the audience something that they, they haven't heard yet about, about that. Uh, but I'll just keep on going on this random tangent. Uh, uh, that uh, For most people, I think if you have a really interesting retort to this, for most people who have, who have reached a stage of celebrity, many of them get captured by their audience and they become memes. Uh, there are some people who can transcend this, uh, but a lot of people essentially become what they want their followers to think, basically, and their and their and their 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 thoughts essentially become. It's like the lowest common denominator, and it, it sort of infects their thinking. Um, and so, I've actually found with this show that I like to interview people outside who are not a part of this collective sort of like meme celebrity culture. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that, or? What do you think about that? Do you did you notice that you and you can agree, disagree, or ask me questions? <laughs> no, of course, of yeah. course. Yeah. Um, I would say, in all honesty, I've never really thought about this. Like, this is like the first time this idea is being presented to me, but I must say it's quite interesting. I'd say my intuition would say, well, my my thoughts would go more towards like why that could like why that could be happening and um, why somebody would like to do that. Um, and I don't know. I just think it has more to do with self, you know. Uh, I'd say like the origin of self mm. like does that person's identity stem from the external world or does it stem internally and yeah maybe you know we're just exploring this idea but maybe it has something to do with the person not being able to make a good connection or yeah. I guess live in one of those two worlds yeah. too much and then that becomes their full self mm. uh, what do you think well yeah no I like what you said because when you said externally and internally, at first I thought you may may have been saying that internally would be a better way to to find some sort of identification. But you then follow up and you said uh, that actually, like 
if you go too much into either of those things. And I think that's accurate because if you go too internally, uh, you know, you go off into the woods and become a monk and do those things like in, in, in search of enlightenment, uh, then then you remove yourself from the world and then thus lose your ability to to um, engage with what's given to us, what's what's what we're here to do and stuff. There can be an escapist element to it. And a lot of people do that. Um, and so I think there's two sides of the coin. And then the opposite of what you said, uh, if they're too focused on the external representation of themselves, then they then they get captured inside of that and their audience plays into that. And that's exactly right. That's that's I think what happens to a lot of people who become famous. The most uh interesting example is Nassim Taleb. Uh have you heard of Nassim Taleb? The the economist? Yes, the black swan wrote Black Swan Fooled by Randomness and stuff like that. Very interesting work. I've learned a lot of his work. I I or I, I I still to this day with the book Anti-Fragile that that framework totally changed the way that I see the world and um and uh and but then if you go on Twitter and you follow him on Twitter, he's just like a raging narcissist <laughs> who is who is just like uh he's got what they call a main character syndrome, just like a total asshole and will not accept debate, will not accept um uh and so like seeing those two things, like something happened between the it feels like something happened between those books. Maybe if he writes another book, it'll be an amazing and like totally blow our minds and he's just like unique in that in that way. But I I would I would suspect that his best years are behind him, basically. Um and uh and uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, there's a lot I want to talk with you about. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, uh, let's go with the flow. Yeah, know? let's see what happens. I'd say like my the ideas I was getting from from that narrative there was, you know, when we went on the walk the other day. Mm -hmm. I told you about um, the book that I'd read. I think you'd also read it like at the shrub, yeah. uh, and Rand, and yeah, and Rand. And um, there's like a character in the book. Uh, I'll, I can't remember his name, but he's like a. He's like a, the most famous scientist in the world, essentially. And like part of his character is that in terms of what he values in most in the entire world is intelligence or what he defines as intelligence. And like as a consequence of that, he thinks that the purest form of intelligence is how we would say in our world, uh, academic intelligence, you know? Like if you're not able to uh, contemplate and understand these these ideas in mathematics and science and physics, whatever, mm -hmm. then to him, you were like uh, subservient. Like you, you weren't mm -hmm. even the same like, intellectual level as him. So oh. when you were telling me about like Nassim Taleb, I was thinking, oh, yes. he's probably uh, so intellectual. Like, you know, I, I've read a couple of his books too, notably like Skin in the Game. And uh, I think that's what could happen to some people when, when you publish a couple of books and you become super intellectual, quote unquote, relative to uh, the other people, you, I don't know, the ego is a mm. complex thing. <laughs> it can sometimes uh, work against it, right? So I would say my answer to that is um, people's intellectual journey can sometimes be uh, detrimental to, the, to their identity in some way mm. because they attribute a lot of their identity their worth in their ability to intellectualize the world and thus i guess create some sort of boundary between reality the realistic reality was what i what i think realistic reality is let's say mm. i don't know what you think <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's go into that uh what do you think realistic reality is yeah i'll be honest like i'm i'm still on my journey to really figuring out my real answer to that question again we, we spoke about this a bit the other day 
So I, I, I guess I will start with like how I plan to find the tr my truth to, mm. to this answer. Um, I think my answer lies in the field of physics. I, I think I need to learn more about physics, read it more, more about deep, more read about it more deeply. But my intuition um, leads me towards string theory. So mm. I guess without delving too much into this theory, um, mainly due to my lack of knowledge, um, there is a big part of me that do that is open to the idea that the world is comprised of energy, mm. not necessarily mm. as, as molecules as we, or particles as, as we might think of it. And the reason being is that I find it a super interesting phenomenon that I think is interesting, uh, an interesting part of being a human is that people give off these energies, these like vibes, and uh, we're able to like be receptive to such vibes and radiate such vibes. And it makes me question that if we're, if you're able to, if I'm able to speak with Stuart and radiate an energy and you can feel it, but we don't even uh, make physical contact, I don't think it's too far-fetched yeah, to be yeah, like, yeah. oh, okay, if I touch something, that some transfer's happening in terms of energy in that way too. Uh, interesting. Yeah, the, 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 uh, that's a really interesting part. So there's the, there's the sensation you get when you touch something physical, uh, but then there's also the vibes that you get when you're in the presence of somebody where what do you think is the distance? Like, if you were to ask yourself, at what how at what point when I'm in in somebody's circle, when do I start to become affected by them? Mm. Like, you go to a party, uh, or or you enter a room and somebody's there, and like like are, is it one foot or is it like three feet or can you do it at a distance? Mm. Good question. I think there could be like degrees to it. To be honest, like for example. <laughs> Uh, we're all attracted by different things, uh, right? Uh, and I think that's the same for for energy. So, for example, maybe when I walk into a room, uh, my mind uh, somehow receives the stimuli from the thing that my brain knows is most attractive uh, to myself. Uh, 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 yeah. And then, like, if that's like, if we go on to to further degrees of levels, maybe like on my like spectrum. There's like things that I find super attractive and things that I'm not so attractive, but I still uh, I'm attracted to. Interesting, too. and so, it goes to the reverse too as well. Yeah. There's things that you're repelled by as well. Yeah, I would yeah. say I would say um, again, probably at least in my life, in my perspective, I would say that uh, both of those mm -hmm. extremes are true for me. So if I walk into a room, I would say it's just as likely that I would notice some negative energy as it would be that there's like it's really attractive energy too yeah. you know yeah um but i also would like to add and uh hear your opinion on this as well is that i think certain people not necessarily myself but i think people in the world do possess this ability to to let's say i'm going to say empathy mm. in, in this case mm. be able to to mm. feel that energy more freely yeah. yeah um so i think that also could play a part two yeah because and it goes back to that the way you're saying about string theory and that that uh the world is made up of energy and not particles and that you can feel sorts of difference energies either like through the senses themselves or through like maybe extrasensory perceptions as well um basically the vibes uh the holistic understanding um and now i've forgotten where i was originally going with this <laughs> uh but it's really interesting um there are follow-up questions that I want to ask about physics and how much you understand about string theory, because I don't understand string theory. One of my meditation teachers, uh, who's actually British originally, uh, but then uh, converted to Judaism and then went to Israel, he was a physicist. Uh, and and so he would say crazy things like when he was teaching. And he's also like like just experienced, like sitting down with him on Zoom calls, 
would be psychedelic no matter what because of the way that he could bring me into into certain avenues of, of philosophy and then also negate most of my most of my models of the world um and then he, he would say something like that like a that somebody who's into meditation would say and then he'd follow it up with uh you know but then i was studying in my in my doctorate in physics that you know we talk about third dimension and fourth dimension but there's actually 11 dimensions and uh and and just like like crazy crazy stuff that he had the scientific background to also make these claims and stuff like that but then also he had the 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 the, the essence and the presence to make claims related to the to the nature of truth um and uh uh and so i that I've lost my tangent on that as well. So I, there's more questions about string theory, but I want to go into machine learning uh, and what you've been studying. Uh, Cause you said that you, before we started recording, you said that you had been studying mathematics and that now you're in the machine learning world, you're studying machine learning, you've got a great book. And then somehow the mathematics, while important maybe to conceptualize things, aren't that helpful in actually doing the machine learning. Uh, is that accurate? I would like to preface, for me, that's accurate. Mm. I think the the approach could differ, you know, from person to person, but I'd say for me, that's accurate. But the reason being would be that um, in terms of, I think it's probably easier if I explain my journey so far. So earlier this year, I believe in March, I, I lost my job. Um, I got laid off. I was working in sales and uh, truth be told, it was like a blessing in disguise. Um, I was working in sales. I didn't really like it. Um, it wasn't a good fit for me personally, uh, but I tried something out and uh, I learned from it, but learned that it wasn't for me. So I had to go back to the drawing board and kind of think about um, what direction I want to take my life in. And um, I always noticed that, well, I started thinking about what I used to like when I was younger, to be honest with you. And um, I noticed that when I was younger, I really loved math, like, um, I like the problem solving aspect of it. And it was one of those activities where I would get into the flow of like solving a problem. It was really nice. Um, but I'd kind of forgotten that, but it's still been around. And then um, prior to working in sales, I dabbled a little bit in programming too. And um, I never really like experienced that at a young age. It was more to do when I was at university, but I always found it interesting, but I never fully like committed to it or really thought about being a programmer or a developer um and then yeah like when I lost my job when I lost my job um I'll be honest I, I was quite calm about it I was like I, I've always kind of been like that when something big happens I think that that kind of probably happened for some sort of reason um and yeah like funnily enough I didn't actually go straight from like sales to uh, machine learning and data science like the way that everything kind of connected was um I wasn't really thinking too clearly, to be honest. I was just like, okay, um, I think a part of me was a, a bit hurt in some way from like, losing my job. I was like kind of in this mindset of like, oh, like, uh, uh, screw the man. Like, uh, I don't want to work for anyone, a company ever again. You know, I woke up, just lost my job um, after working really hard. Um, so like my, my wait, wait, uh, was there any communication about that when 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 they quit when they when they fired you what what was the communication was it just was it totally related to the what happened in technology that like they just had to make twenty percent cuts or how did it happen? Good question. Yeah, I don't mind like exploring that. Yeah. I just have to be careful. Like even though there's no hard feelings with my yeah. previous company, I don't want to like uh, I, I need to think about my yeah. words. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah basically. Yeah. 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 Um, 
So yeah, like I can answer the question. Yeah. So essentially what happened, I think it wasn't really to do with like necessarily the tech layoffs per se, like yeah. is in the market. I think it was more to do with, um, I think that probably had a bit of a part to play, but I think it was more to do with, it was a really big strategic decision for the company mm-hmm. because they had a great product, but they were struggling to sell the product for whatever reason. And there was just too many people selling the product. So um, I forgot the name of the law. It's the 80-20 law, right? Pareto uh, principle. Yeah, the Pareto yeah, principle. Yeah, like yeah. there was like a big sales team. Yeah. I had yeah, 20% of the people in the sales team. I was just new. So yeah, I was looking at it for three months. Yeah. So it was a structural thing. That yeah, they, they, they had a change of strategy and they, yeah. were, and they were like, yeah, no. So that that, that gave me the answer to, to, the, to the question. Okay. So, and then, sorry for interrupting. So, yeah, uh, no so you, you, you get fired from this job. You were in a little bit of an existential crisis. What happened after that? Yeah. So um, I saw it as an opportunity first, first of all, uh, to have a new path and learn more about myself. So like I said, I didn't actually make this lateral like change to, to machine learning and data mm-hmm. science. Um, I actually tried going into marketing, like mm-hmm. digital marketing. Mm-hmm. Because my some of my some of my thought process was like you know I'm currently in Argentina yeah <laughs> like I'm not in England right yeah. now you know like like uh so I have to figure life out is cheap how, yeah. or no 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 sorry you, you well uh, so what was your original point that you're not in England you're not in London anymore so it's harder for you to find the next thing or no it's more to do with like uh, the nature of my work has to be remote right oh, yes, so, got it, got it. so I was yeah. thinking like yeah. what remote possibilities yes. do I have yeah. yeah that I actually find interesting and uh, that was one of them. And I was like, okay, I could potentially like learn the skill, um, build an agency and kind of build this like remote life that way. And um, I started I started with it and I realized that uh, a big part, not a big part, but a fundamental part of like digital marketing is actually understanding like HTML. Mm. So like when I first started learning about, about a bit more about digital marketing, naturally I had to start like learning HTML and when it was at this point where I was like, wow, this is so cool. Like I like, I like coding. Mm. Um, so I explored that more and I realized just was honest with myself. I said, I, I didn't really enjoy it. Mm. And that's no disrespect to digital marketers out there, yeah. but it just wasn't for me as game, yeah. you know, I didn't well, find What about it? So you, t- you say, say HTML, it's related to HTML. Um, and you just found it like sort of boring to, to move pixels in a screen or. No, HTML wasn't necessarily boring. Okay. It was more to do with like the, the, the knowledge that's required to be like a digital like marketer, like uh, I just didn't find it interesting. Oh, got it. Yeah, like, yeah, I like yeah. the HTML part yeah, of it, yeah. but and, and like coding, but yeah. I didn't really like all the other stuff I had to learn, or I just didn't find it interesting. It was like I was always having to overcome this resistance. Like it was never fun in any way. Yeah. So and um, is that like um things like the basic? It sounds like you're a first principles thinker, and I I, I enjoy talking to first principles because we can break it down and figure, discover uh, what certain things are. And you've had experience in sales. You've had experience in marketing, marketing, digital marketing. The principles around digital marketing are maybe um, uh, that they that they build the funnel for the sales thing. Is that is it that that part of the principles, or what are the principles that you didn't like? Before? So again, just to preface, like yeah. this was only like a, a moment yeah, yeah, or something. Yeah, 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 like yeah. I, I was never, I wasn't deep down yeah. the rabbit hole, but it was more because I I do believe the even when you're starting like something new you 
I think anybody can, if they sit down and think about it, some people might find it's easier than others, but you can see the future, right? You can see your, yeah, can yeah, you see yeah, yourself yeah, doing yeah, that? Yeah, like, yeah. So you ask yourself that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, I could not see myself yeah, doing yeah, it. It's yeah. like, I was lying to myself yeah, if I kept yeah, doing it. So that was like the question that, that yeah. I, I really asked. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, then after, after um, realizing this and going more towards the HTML, then uh, the next question was, okay, like, programming or development is like definitely something that um, fits my interests uh, let's explore this more because I guess one mistake that I made I just jumped into the marketing mm. like I, it was quite impulsive mm. given given my situation um, so I was like okay let's let's be a bit more conscious about it and really explore like all the different avenues and um, yeah I guess the crazy thing is like around this time this was really really um this happened very suddenly after I moved to Buenos Aires. Like, I was here for like maybe just a month or something. Like, and that, I lost my job and all this happened. But at this time, I also um, befriended two American guys, uh, and one of them's an entrepreneur, and uh, he studied computer science like at university. So he kind of like like helped me try and figure out what the right path is for me. And showed me all the different avenues that I could take, that I could take with in, in programming essentially. And uh, after like you know exploring a little bit, little bits of each, like uh, I didn't really like front end to be mm -hmm. honest. Mm -hmm. uh, again, I have no disrespect for anybody that does front end. I think I think everything that anybody does in the world has like a certain skill set to it, and I think people can can master it and do that do that amazing thing. But it, it wasn't it wasn't technical enough for me. I wanted something with more maths involved. And hence, that's why I ended up going towards data science. And then, like, AI was the big hype thing. So I was like, okay, what really is AI? Yeah. Because... Wait, wait, what is AI? <laughs> <laughs> so, like, do you want the formal definition or, or what? Both. Let's start okay, with formal okay. definition. Yeah. So I guess, like, the formal definition, which I learned in the book oh. that, that you mentioned earlier, is the, it's the science of programming computers to learn from data. Oh, cool. Essentially. Yeah. Um, there's an engineering definition, which is a bit more complicated, but I can't really explain it. Yeah. But, the other two definitions that you can look up and um yeah so i was like okay like then but just while on this topic of ai there's also different areas of ai as well there's like nlp there's um expert systems there's one with a really weird name actually that i can't recall right now what do they do um i think it has something to do with yeah fuzzy fuzzy logic or something uh, like that okay yeah I think like right. fuzzy yeah, logic yeah, yeah. um yeah, but nonetheless, my point here is that there's like five or six different areas of like artificial intelligence. And, you know, before like learning this, I was of the knowledge that it was all just this one thing, you know. Mm -hmm. So after exploring that, machine learning and deep learning are the, 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 the remaining two of the five. And um, I was like, okay, like the machine learning and the deep learning, after exploring these, they're the most interesting. I'm going to pursue that. And then after that, it was a question of how do I do it? So I sat down and I recommend anybody do this if they want to achieve a, a big goal or even a small one, sit down. And it's not, it's not an original suggestion, but there's like the smart framework. And if you sit down and like do the smart framework properly and you lay out like all the steps, I think it's really good because I think the attainment of any big goal, the biggest thing that stops people from achieving that goal is their purpose. Mm because we haven't really got into like the, the specifics of my journey yet but i can tell you one thing for certain there's been many moments where like the self-doubt i'm like i'm failing at a lot of stuff i'm terrible at it 
and like it's in those moments where that purpose like was like I, this is just part of the process you know uh and so that's what you're saying for marketing uh the marketing you didn't see that purpose and it was, yeah, it, was all, yeah. it was maybe what we were talking about earlier on the walk was that the mimetic theory is like somebody said marketing and you're like oh that sounds good i'll do that and that's that's something i can do remotely yeah and then you tried it and then there's like it's not not it's not worth all the all the crazy shit and then and then machine learning has it has been worth it to understand more about it yeah so, yeah like i say like you know i'm only 26 i would still consider myself quite young um but i would say to anybody early in life that it's okay if you don't really know what you want to do straight away but i think the fundamental thing that i've learned is that you should always do the thing that you're interested in mm. um you know there's this, always this argument of like should you do what you get a great at or like should you yeah. do what you really love yeah. and i'm, I'm definitely they're all abstractions yeah, yeah. You're, 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 you're <laughs> and they're all abstractions and they're all yeah. bullshit and they all they all posit this this future world where everything will be great and to yeah. get to that future world of everything being great you have to do these things that other people say that you have to do and it's all bullshit it's all totally yeah bullshit. yeah because it's like like it's great to plan it's great to look into the future but none of your plans will ever go to plan mm -hmm. and it's always going to change definitely, uh, definitely. yeah um okay and then and then so you machine learning what so you did these masks so what are the masks that you did that you'd realize may not actually be uh, potentially not be the things that you need to learn machine learning okay so let's answer that question first how like how do you learn machine learning mm -hmm. i think there's many different answers to this question firstly it depends like where do you see yourself in this field you know like are you, are you someone who wants to be like an engineer and build the model and maintain the model or do you want to be like more on the scientific side um like research and, and research yeah, yeah. and like work with the actual algorithms that power like the machine learning models um so the good thing i guess about this like one of one of those options the machine learning engineer i really don't think you need to go to like university to to to, to become a machine learning engineer on the other hand, to be like the researcher, yeah, you do yeah. like yeah. I'm gonna be honest with you, like yeah. uh, you yeah. need to uh, have the PhD, yeah. and all this other stuff. So yeah, like if anyone's listening to this uh, before before they're at university or even if they're even if they're later in life, like that's the path you got to take. Um, Wait, let me, so I agree with you, but I also want to challenge challenge you on that. How how important has it been for um, with have you used ChatGPT to try to do those research thing? Well, actually, let's start with what 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 is research? What what do you see as research? Good question. Yeah, I would say that I see research. It's, it's, it's obviously there's a vast there's a vast yeah. answer to this yeah. question. But for me, for me, research would be consciously deciding the questions that you want to answer, mm -hmm. and then executing the appropriate techniques to find the answer to those questions mm. and therefore mm. like, learn more about whatever it is that you were trying to figure out in the first place so essentially to and then you would need to go to university because university could give you the pathway to understanding mm. all the different ways that people have already yeah. this. so mine's that mine there was more to do with like for example yeah. i want to i want to say this on the podcast sure. like i really believe that you don't really need to go to university to learn anything these days. Uh, uh, but yeah. but yeah. the truth is, for certain career paths, there's this, I don't know, system that you yeah. have to like follow to, uh, to, to follow these paths, right? Yeah. Like if you want to become a lawyer, like I, I could theoretically yeah. learn everything I need to do to become a doctor or a lawyer by myself. 
but like that's not good they're not yeah. i'm not like it's you you meant it's, so it's the relationships it's the relationships yeah, yeah. you build at the university that will open certain doors which will be totally close to you unless yeah you and also certification as well yeah. i would say okay, yeah. um so that's that's what my point really was there but in all honesty i did i did have like a another idea came to me after i said that i wouldn't say that's actually entirely true mm-hmm. like when i say what when i when I'm, what i'm referring to here is that if you take the path i'm taking mm-hmm. As in, like, you try to go into data science, even if, even as a data scientist, because depending on like the work that you're doing, there's a good chance that you're probably going to be using like simple, um, supervised like learning algorithms mm-hmm. or unsupervised. Mm-hmm. So, like, you're probably going to be doing some machine learning anyway. So, my point being is that if if your end goal is to become like a scientist and like work in these institutions, uh, you got to remember life is a, a marathon, right? So if you if you decide to work as more as a developer or a machine learning engineer or a data scientist, then you're going to be in the field. You're going to have the experience. You're going to have all the knowledge. So like later on in life, when you've got more capital and also the connections, I would still say that it's very possible to transition to the other side and like work more with the algorithms firsthand and, and develop them. But I think the other way around, it's not really possible. I mean, sorry, as in, mm. it's not really possible to, no, it would be possible both ways, but <laughs> I think you get what I'm trying to say. So, so you got two different career paths. One, you're going into academia, become the mathematician, become the researcher, and then get into the world that way. Or you become, you go into business as a programmer in a specific role. And then if, what you're saying is that eventually, once you get to that role where you've, you've kind of made your name for yourself, then you can yeah, transition yeah, into research. But, but I don't think you can go from... I don't think somebody outside of an academic institution yeah. can go, even if they had all the knowledge, can go directly to the yes. the, the the research role. Yeah, yeah. You know? It's really interesting. I had an opportunity to uh, interview a, a researcher who became got a job at Invisible, which is the company that I'm doing business with uh, on Thursdays. Fascinating interview. Really interesting. Um, and basically, uh, we talked about this research thing, and I think you're going to like what, what I'm about to present, which is that we had this idea during the podcast where we were tr- talking about consciousness, whether the, the machine is already sentient. Both of us agreed that the machine is not sentient right now. And then somehow we ended up at, at like a, a way to test this. And we were talking about meditation retreats and how meditation retreats uh, unplug you from all sorts of stimuli and everything from the inside starts bubbling up and you start to kind of recover recursively look at your own consciousness and it starts sort of like a cleansing mechanism, but cleansing through pain and anxiety and, and all these different things that come up. Uh, and so we, we like, we talked about, no, and then we talked about a float tank. The float tank does the same thing. Uh, does the same thing on a much shorter time frame, uh, And, um, and because it's sensory deprivation, because it deprives you of your senses. And so you're left with only the inside. Um, and, uh, and so um, we are like, okay, well, what if we, what would sensory deprivation look like for the LLM? Could you do sensory deprivation for the LLM? And he's like, oh yeah, we could totally do this. <laughs> uh, and that turned into a research question. So that, and and he actually said that OpenAI might actually be doing this. Um, uh, but like that research, you said it great, which is like, that's the question. You start with that question and regardless of commercialization, you focus on that question. But now I see with this world of, of OpenAI, OpenAI has accumulated all of the best machine learning researchers huge amount. Google has a huge amount as well, but a lot of them are coming to, to open AI. And, um, and it's basically, it's all going to turn into researchers. So 
there will be, in my opinion, slightly making this up right now, um, there will be fewer and fewer tra traditional programmers. It'll be more and more how you can leverage chat GPT to build the programs. And most programmers will become system architects. So instead of being developers, they'll learn how to actually view the whole system together and make chat GPT fill in all the gaps and everything like that. Now, if you still want to be on the metal in machine learning and programming and stuff like that, then you become a researcher. And that's where you try to apply these, unless the, unless the artificial intelligence starts to be able to solve these problems themselves and becomes the researcher themselves, which will eventually happen, but who knows how long that will take, um, then research will become the main thing. And research will stop being so focused purely on commercialization and a gap. Because if you're, if you're, if you're in business, there's so many things that could happen. There's so many technologies that could work, but research, and that's why I call it research and development. Uh, but that the time frame for research and development, because it's such a field where there's so few understandings of whether it'll turn into something commercial, the timeline for that is like 10 years, 15 years. Uh, and then venture capital is like five to eight years. They're looking to get their money back after five to eight years. So it's not venture capital is not yet research and development, uh, but it's more than just like a commodity based business where if I have a bunch of float tanks, like all of them, all of those are known pieces for a float tank. And it's just about branding and like uh, how well you can do admin and operations and stuff. And then so venture capital is like this in between. Um, and so that research question is really interesting because I think you're right, but I think it also might change really quickly. Um, mm -hmm. And that if you want to get into research, that's a good question of, of like, how would somebody get into research if, if, they didn't have to go through that the academic process because that might change as well. The, the relationships probably won't change. That'll probably hard, get harder to get unless you get that brand from the academia. But it's really interesting. Any Anything come up for you? Graham? Yeah, yeah. Like, strangely enough, like, no word of a lie. Like, just randomly today, I was thinking about, um, like, the future of, like, ML engineers, yeah. right? Like, I was thinking hypothetically even if the ai like could make the models themselves there would still have to be somebody there that, 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 that yeah. knows how ai works like Ooh. so my point being is that a researcher or engineer it's like for example uh, there's a really good book i think it's called like prediction machines and it's about like ai essentially it's not it's not too old it's i think maybe like five years old or something um and one of the thing, interesting things in the book, right, like a lot of people are, are genuinely worried about AI taking people's jobs, which is a possibility. Like, uh, I'm not against that idea. Um, but a lot of people are failing to understand that it, it might not actually replace a lot of jobs. It might just change the way that mm. people do their work. So, mm. like, for example, in this case, mm. I'm going to use the example provided in the book that I mentioned. So, for example, uh, accountants have been around for God knows how long, and but Excel hasn't, right? But everybody Excel has Excel, yeah, 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 but Excel hasn't. Yeah. So like, when Excel came out, uh -huh. like actually improved like the yes, the workflow yeah, yeah, of like yes, an accountant. Yeah, yeah. Um, accounting didn't go away. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't, go, <laughs> away. didn't go away. It didn't go away. If anything, yeah. it helped the accountants and it improved yeah. productivity. Yeah. So I think that analogy is very relevant here. Like. But but one but one last thing about that the accountants still had to know all the principles of accounting and like how accounting works like you couldn't just give Excel like if you gave Excel to me I don't know yeah yeah <laughs> I have no yeah. idea how yeah. accounting works yeah. um, so my my point is the uh, with the rise of AI and again using the example all these models 
I still think they have to be developed by an engineer. Uh, like that's yes. that's the job function of yeah. the engineer. So I think someone's still building the models, even in the future. But even if it does become more abstracted, the same thing is like if some if I gave, I don't know, like uh, if we do if we have the same analogy and I give my my parents like all the software they need to that's all AI fueled to make these models and monitor the models they would have no idea because yeah. they don't have the education yeah. to understand what's going on so i've got a very interesting caveat something yeah. i've discovered in the last week is that yes i think that the engineers do need to understand the basic framework of these things have you heard of the term mechanistic interpretability no no, no please don't so mechanistic interpretability means is our understanding of what's going on at the cellular level of these lms and we do not have mechanistic interpretability. So engineers don't know what's going on in the LLM. And so like it's it's emergent. You know the emergent, the word emergent, right? So yeah, for my listeners, emergence is a is an evolutionary term that basically the system itself starts to uh, uh, transcend its original program and start to develop new capabilities that were un, unpredicted. LLMs are emergent in ways that um, traditional algorithms, traditional computing is not. Uh, and due to that emergence, it is beyond our, the scope of our ability to understand what's going on, although they're trying. But the issue is, is this might be the point of the singularity where it, the thing, and this is what makes people so afraid of it, is that, uh, that it is not interpretable and may never become interpretable uh, and may do things that we don't understand. Um, and that's, that is the existential fear for most people is that, if you match that with goal-seeking abilities and potentially consciousness, that those things will create, according to goals that we don't understand, things that we don't like. Mm -hmm. I tend to believe that that's not going to happen. Actually, this would be interesting to ask you about, you know, because obviously you have a good understanding of machine learning. Uh, and I want to get into the technical details of what you know as well. But what, what do you think about the AI ex existential risk? So first of all, <laughs> there's a lot of existential risk, I think. But one thing I will say, I'll start, I'll start with a positive thing. I, I must say from the outside looking in, it seems like everybody that's in the AI like scene, yeah. uh, ethics and morality seem to be like a, high, a top priority. Yeah. Like a lot of people- May I say something real quick? So uh, they make the statements that ethical uh, ethics and morality are important. I would be skeptical whether when the shit hits the fan or wh when the metal meets the road or whatever whatever phrase, I would be skeptical that most of them have the heart or the the integrity to continue up with their with their. I'm not and I'm not questioning the. I am definitely questioning the integrity of some portion of the of the researchers. Mm -hmm. uh, I also think there's some naivete there as well. Um, uh, but. Uh, so, but I'm not questioning the whole thing. Like, there's definitely people thinking ethically and morally, like, and it actually can uh, act according to those thoughts and according to those words. But I think we're headed to places where it's going to become very difficult. But no, no, of course, of course. I'd actually agree with you yeah. as well, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, of course, um, we will soon see if yeah. uh, uh, they they walk the talk. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with you there. I'd also like to say, I guess, like on the on the potential threats, I I do believe that. Uh, most of the research fields, no, no matter if it's AI or or not, they heavily rely on funding, right? Mm. So yes, uh, yeah, yes. Yeah. So, so I do think that there's like some bias in some degree, in, in some yeah. sense of yeah. like yeah. 
uh, a lot of scientists uh, doing the, this is their passion, their dream to, to be a researcher or whatever. And that's their, that's their identity. Of course, it means quite a lot to them. Um, I think, you know, uh, I would guess that I would use the analogy of like the famous uh, donkey and the carrot, you know, like if someone's, if someone's like dying with a carrot in front yeah. of you to, for money for your funding, but there's some sort of catch to it, yes. you know, yeah. like uh, then that, that then it becomes more complicated, right? Like, so I think ultimately, uh, this is a sad reality of the world is that um, the people who have the money, the most money in the world arguably have like the most power and yeah. most yeah. influence. So um, whether we like it or not, that is something that we have to be conscious of. And I think that anybody out there uh, who is interested in AI or even just in any other fields, um, it's also worth checking out like who's funding all these projects because ultimately that has a big influence mm-hmm. as to like what direction companies go in, mm-hmm. uh, what direction like industries go in. So um, it's always important to, to really know who's calling the shots, you know? Mm. So great point. And, and I, we could go further into that and I've got, I've maybe to my detriment <laughs> if, if I ever get famous is that the, uh, that I've said things like, like what I could say right now, but I, I've already covered them. So we don't need to go. Uh, uh, so, um, but uh, so what are what are the existential risks risks of AI? What the existential risks of AI? Or do you believe in the common understanding of the existential risks? And if not, how would you raise them? Just due to my lack of understanding of the question, can you like sure. uh, can you just teach me a little bit sure. more about what you mean by that? Uh, so we have existential risk. Yeah, as you mentioned, there's a lot of existential <laughs> risk out there. Uh, and I would be more worried about certain uh, existential risks. And and I don't mean to say climate change, although I definitely think that environment, uh, there's some existential risk coming from the environment. Uh, uh, and, and I've thought a lot about these things because I uh, in 2020, I became a prepper and like really went to the, the full extent of the prepping logic. And I, I realized that the only way to really prepare is to get wealthy. Like that's the only way to prepare is to, is, is, is to get, because prepping itself without skills without the wealth, without skills that are tied to wealth. And most of the skills of prepping are from the understanding that things are going to go really wrong really quickly. So we need to go back to technology like before technology existed and the amount of time that it would take to develop the skills, although they're out there and you can learn them. Uh, So like the best way to do it is to get a lot of money so that you can prepare for various different scenarios. Um, And also the actual skill tied to money um, uh, because in those situations, if it's total collapse, going back to technology before technology, then um, then uh, you'll want the skills that don't necessarily have a commercial value. But if it's partial collapse, you'll always want the skills that are related to value. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 so um, so there's going back to the AI existential risk question. What are the existential risks of AI? The stated ones from a lot of the people who talk about the ethics and morality is uh, that, as I said earlier, which is tie the emergence together with um, uh, with goal seeking and with consciousness, potential conscience, or maybe even just sentience. Um, tie those things together. It becomes an entity that has its own goals. Are those goals aligned with our goals? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that the researchers, a lot of people in this say like, oh, we have a 10% chance that, that those goals are not gonna be aligned with ours. And that means that the thing will either kill us all for some reason that never gets stated, uh, or uh, or just ignore us uh, and put nice pet collars on us and let us do our thing while it's focused on these world cha- universe defying like the kind of scale systems. 
So that's one risk aligned somehow apocalypse we're, we're all going to get killed by the thing. Cause it realizes, I guess a, the, the, the actual chain of thought is like as an AI with its own goals, what are the goals likely to be uh, more power, more compute um, and more power, more compute solar panels and data servers that just like strip mines, the entire universe or turn entire earth. And we just, it becomes a planet full of solar panels you know, destroyed Buenos Aires because there's really good sun here and it just puts up a bunch of polar uh, solar panels. And like we as human beings don't become that important anymore. So it like makes these just crazy decisions where genocide is. Um, so I guess that's the fully mapped out existential risk question. Then there is our other existential risks that I think are undervalued in, in terms of their thought. The primary one, which we have a lot of evidence today already with technology is kids grow up with this thing uh, like their kids are growing up with screens, you take the screen away from them and they turn into just nightmare child uh, children who beasts who who don't have this thing that they've become accustomed to. Now imagine that with AI. I've already experienced it. AI went down four days ago and I um, <laughs> I, was, I didn't I didn't get a tantrum, uh, but uh, but I could have if it lasted a couple more days. Uh, uh, and so um, like. Uh, uh, and I, this is actually what I was talking about with that ML researcher is that I'm already aware of this for myself for screens. And I, I try to go on meditation retreats to go back into that detox program. Um, but fundamentally, we're, we're, it's become a new limb. It's becoming, it's, it's not, an, you can't say it's an addiction anymore because it's becoming part of our, our psychic or psyche. Uh, um, and so that's the existential risk I don't think a lot of people talk about is like, say that happens. Then we have one of these existential risks, like, okay, all the com compute goes to down. All we don't have access to oil. We don't have access to gas. Uh, shipping lanes destroyed. Uh, somehow affects the computing thing. And we lose this very valuable tool. Like that will be a harsh thing. Um, and uh, existential risks. So I think, I think those are most of the existential risks associated with AI. Um, are you, are you, I guess the question that I would ask is that, are you scared of it? Not really. Yeah. But, but of course, like, I'm quite biased, right? Like, I'm really, big fan of technology and its uh, potential but, but just like staying on those ideas that you put forward um in the first thought experiment about like the LM becoming conscious essentially yeah. and i guess like you could say go like matrix or terminator yeah. esque on us um a part of me thinks and again this is just purely speculation that is a possibility i don't know the specifics of necessarily how that theoretically could happen based on the the technical aspects of that of that um mm -hmm. idea but I'd like to think that there's certain precautions. Like, for example, um, I think that could happen if we if we develop systems and infrastructure in the world that is entirely dependent on the AI. Mm, but if we yeah, create some good, sort yeah, of, like, yeah, yeah, segmentation yeah, yeah. where the AI cannot physically, like... Uh, air gap it. Interesting. Yeah. Air, 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 gap. Uh, air gap AI, yeah, I guess you could say that. Oh, how, no, you air gap civilization. How do you air gap civilization from AI? Because AI, if it's connected to the internet, we're now moving quickly into a world that as long as something is connected to the internet, it will be accessible to AI. So interesting. So it needs to be, that's a, that's a cool nonprofit that could be started. Although you probably want to, you probably want to make a profit somehow because I don't know <laughs> if you saw the open AI stuff, but it makes me never want to start a nonprofit. Uh, 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 so it would need to be some sort of way of creating a totally air-gapped, computing thing with all of the world's knowledge on it we might already be past that point of air gapping civilization because if you think about it all of our nuclear power plants 
They're probably air gapped from the internet. I wonder if they're air gapped from the internet. Do you know anything about that? No, no, no. Yeah, no. This is, these are good questions because it's like, you know, the stut, there's a Stutnex virus that Israel uh, programmed into the uh, Iranian nuclear to do a cyber attack. So like the Iranian nuclear thing was open to the internet, I think. Please tell me if I'm wrong here because it's really interesting. Uh, and um, so is our, yeah, so air gapping civilization from AI is a really good point. I, I just want to stress yeah. like necessarily the whole, like my idea was there's, there's levels to it, of yeah. course. Like for example, like here I have my iPhone. Yeah. If in the next, I don't know, in this evolution of AI, if phones still exist yeah. where AI isn't like a default um, part of the phone, for yeah. example, in this case, then maybe someone could create a software that just that you like an ad block, you know, like where I say, okay, there's certain aspects of my phone where I am connected to AI, but. Uh... But there's certain things that I yeah. I can code that's been coded. Yeah. Okay. Like, oh, I like that better. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. To like yeah, yeah. say no, like I went I went immediately to the prepper mindset, which was <laughs> like, how do you how do you yeah avoid a world where the AI can get its? But you're talking at a software level, which I really like, and reminds me of Urbit. Um, did I tell you about talk about Urbit? Urbit is a a new form of computing where they've they've noticed the problem that you just described, uh, and they've noticed other problems that are related to it. Uh, one of which is centralization so that for you to do what you just described apple would need to give you permission to do that okay so what would computing look like if nobody needed permission on anything uh starting from this fundamental like decentral uh, distributing the computer onto a lot of different personal servers using BitTorrent like technology uh that allows any peer-to-peer to uh to decide whether they want to connect together basically and so they redesigned the whole computing paradigm to do this um, and so that or something like that is necessary to do what you're talking about, uh, which I'm really excited about. And I hope happens and I hope happens quickly because AI is getting centralized. And I think uh, a lot of people got a wake up call this week to, to why it's important that AI is not centralized and that AI is distributed or decentralized. Um, I think it's really important. Um, so we got probably about 10 minutes left, I'd say. Um, and uh, so if you have anything to say about because I like that idea about about what you're saying, how to air gap certain applications from the AI in order to improve it. Do you have anything else to say about that, or or uh, we can go back to? I'd say it was. I'd say like I'd extend that principle to like systems as well, right? Yeah. Like for example, some hardware systems that could be used yeah. within transportation or something like that. Like I think there should be some sort of like, uh, hypothetically, like some sort of interface that the that the AI can't access because in my mind, when you were telling me about this, this consciousness AI, yeah. uh, unfortunately <laughs> wanted to kill everyone. Yeah. Um, I imagine that it needs to have access like a network to everything, but if you put constraints in the network yeah. Yeah, that you it cannot access, then I think that would be like one way to safeguard it. Right. Like, uh, um, but it just depends on I guess the network architecture and if it's, if it's designed in such a way yeah and if and if for example with some things like maybe it would even differ from system system to system because for example let's just use the example of Buenos Aires right like the the subway system here it's an old system so maybe there aren't really ways that it can be updated yeah maybe yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. maybe it would have to entirely be redesigned or maybe that the technology is old or 
I don't know, incompatible in some way. Yeah. Maybe like some systems just yeah. would have to be. That's how you, you're, you're describing Urbit right now. That's, oh, that's okay. the whole problem that they're trying to solve. It's just the whole the whole computing network is built like a sub like the Buenos Aires subway, and that in order to in order to actually solve the problems that showed up in the last ten years, we need to just clean slate, do the whole thing again. Yeah. Both the operating system and the networking compatibility. Because with personal computing, we started with the operating system before we actually were able to network the operating systems together. And then network, then networking happened, 1980s, TCIP, all these different things then started to be created. And then, um, uh, and then so and then it led to Unix and what was the other one? Well, let's start with Unix. Unix was the uh, networking protocol that connected all these different computers together. And that's really fucking old. And then BitTorrent came around and, you know, with Napster and all these different things. And the idea that you could share files peer to peer, like, so you have that train, but then you had the centralization of Web 1.0 or Web 2.0, where we have this technology that anybody can be a peer to peer and, and transmit data information without, a, without any sort of permission. But the internet was built off of this thing that incentivized things like Facebook and Google, which were large corporations owning data centers and then having a client server relationship. Mm -hmm. And now, um, now we're in a world where we can do it peer to peer, but can't do it because of the infrastructure of the internet mm -hmm. and the infrastructure of personal computing. So I'm excited. I hope somebody does it because it needs to happen soon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I think that's the thing, right? I guess I flashed you this question, right? Do you think this, do you think disruptive innovation causes innovation not only to mm -hmm. amplify the progression of such technology, but for example, Urbit, did you yeah, say? Yeah. Like they're actually doing, they're actually focusing on a problem that that causes, right? So yeah. innovation kind of happens both ways. It's, it amplifies technology and it safeguards it in some way. Oh, interesting. Okay, so yeah, you're saying that there's two categories of innovation. One that makes progress. No, can you repeat it? Yeah, so like if we, if we clearly define like this category of like yeah. disruptive technologies, yeah. which okay. is not yeah, necessarily yeah, just yeah. AI, yeah. Let's say for any disruptive technology, there's going to be startups that focus on how can we use this technology for its strengths. Yeah. But then somebody's thinking this is going to cause these problems by default by the nature of the technology. So we're going to focus on making innovative solutions yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. to 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 safeguard and protect the people. Yeah. Um, so I think innovation goes both ways. I guess. It's not necessarily oh like, interesting so it's almost like taking the political ideology of progressive versus conservative <laughs> in some way yeah and, you know and you're right that. and urbit is a conservative project so it, okay. it comes from the conservative uh, uh realm uh and and it's a question i've been i've been wondering which is that usually innovations associated with progress like you just said that's a very good point and um but now we've had too much progress right like it's it's gone too far and we need to rein it back in and and there's people on the left who are who are talking about reining it back in, um, but I, I my personal ideological opinion says that they're doing it from a lens which is how do I centralize it? How do I take the power because I'm the one who knows how to make the right decision, similar to communism, uh, but there was fascism trying to do it as well, uh, uh, and so. Like, I'm going to make the decision. This is too powerful for you. Here, let me take that. And that's currently what is the what the large companies are lobbying for. They're lobbying the U.S. government to say, we've made this technology. We're the ones who know how to do this. We're going to build the foundational models. Make sure that no one else can build foundational models because those upstarts over there, the ones that we used to be back in the 90s, those guys can't 
can't figure it out. Uh, and so they're trying to regulatory capture so that it's really a business move. It's not, it's not actually has anything to do with existential risk. And then there's a whole bunch of naive people who are, who are, who are parroting these, these lines. And as we discussed, they're not fully thought out. There's no evidence right now. Please, if somebody's listening to this, please give me some evidence for one way that AI has already harmed us. I get that potential is like, you know, the potential to be harm, harmed is, is, is important to recognize that, but it really like make it practical, like one example where AI has already harmed another person. I've got one, which is uh, uh, robocalls that sound like a person, deep fake robocalls. That's a real problem. And, yeah. and I've seen evidence that people have been scammed already in that, but it's just a accentuation of a thing that was already existing. Um, so where was I? Um, we were talking about, yeah, oh, centralization and progressive, no, uh, conservative. And so what you just described is innovation coming from the conservative angle that's meant to retain something about the human uh, that's going to be severely uh, challenged as as some of us move towards transhumanism. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be really interesting. Uh, so a couple minutes left. What uh, uh, We can talk about that stuff or we can go back to the machine learning and what you're excited about uh, learning. Okay. Yeah, I guess I guess we'll go back to the math and the yeah the, the book because yeah so like for anybody that that wants to uh, learn about machine learning and I guess learn the techniques and what the day by day job of like I guess a machine learning engineer would be I'd say that you don't really need to start with the maths um, primarily because as I was saying to to you Stuart before this podcast today that a lot of the math is severely abstracted like you really don't really need to know too much about the math like if you wanted to learn about the math just out of curiosity i highly recommend you do so and the, the key the key thing is as well guys is that you don't need to learn like all of maths you know you, you don't need to learn about geometry for example mm -hmm. you just need to learn about like probability and statistics um linear algebra and uh the third area it's escaping me um, I really, I really can't remember what the first yeah. area. So don't come back to what? Are the, okay, pro yeah, probability, probability, and linear algebra, uh, and then one other one. What, what you yeah, yeah. I, for some reason, it's escaping. Yeah. So yeah. So okay, and though you'll need probability and linear algebra in order to do what? So in other words, prob probability and linear algebra. It's more to do with I don't know how familiar people are like with programming, for example. But Python is primarily the language of data science. Yes. Yeah. So a lot of operations that are performed in the data are done in arrays, which are essentially mm -hmm. matrices, depending on how many, well, a matrix, matrix and a, a vector are two different things, just to do with the dimensions. But if anyone's mm -hmm. interested, you can look that up, it's really simple. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so, so the fundamentals is that essentially when you're working with the data, you might have to manipulate it in such a way mm. using some sort of matrix operation. Mm. So in order to understand how that works, you need to kind of know the matrix operations mm. uh, mm. and the mathematical logic behind it. But you would just transfer that to code, for example. And the what, what I'm trying to say there, what I'm trying to say there, if that was a bit abstract, is that there's code that performs the operations that you need to perform, yeah. but in somewhere or another you kind of do know how you need to know how the matrices matrices interact yeah, yeah, yeah. with each other and work to know what operation to perform 
So oh, interesting. Do you, do you get what I'm trying yeah, to say? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so like, you don't really need to know like the, the nitty gritty of yeah. the maps, but you need to know how the logic works. It goes back to the code. yeah. It goes back to the system architect idea. It's like my theory that most programmers are are going to become system architects essentially. Yeah. Like they're not gonna they're not gonna do the low level programming thing, and they're not even gonna figure out like how to like the the it'll be as much as you'll just need to do a prompt to be like, hey, ChatGPT or preferably open source AI that's coming in the future. Uh, hey, give me ten different ways to implement this, mm -hmm. and then and then okay, now implement that specific one after it gives you the reasoning. And so you just become more and more high level and understand like what you're talking about, which is the well, I'll, I'll ask you is linear algebra and uh, probability. Um, sorry, I remember what the third one is. The what third, is it? What the yeah. third one's like. Uh... Multivariable calculus. Okay. That's what you need to learn. Um, okay. <laughs> Multivariable calculus, linear algebra, and um, and uh, uh, probabilities. Yeah. So you won't even, and well, no, here's the question. In a, in a year, or actually even right now, because I think that's what you're saying, is that do you need to understand linear algebra, multivariable calculus, and um and uh, probability right now in order to do machine learning? No, I would say not. I'd yeah. say the fundamental thing is to uh, have a good, strong programming base, you know, specifically yeah. in Python. Yeah. Um, so the abstraction layer yeah. of Python <laughs> becomes the most important thing to learn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you would just use certain libraries that you, you, can, you can use them in different languages, of course, yeah. but like scikit-learn, TensorFlow, um, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Python, yeah, is the language of data science. So you uh, learn Python. Yeah. And also uh, I would say I'd recommend learn a bit of SQL because you're probably going to use Python or SQL to work yeah. databases as well, right? With yeah. the data. So and just just those two so far, I would say in certain libraries. Cool. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, if somebody's listening to this and wants to find out more about you, how can they find you on the interwebs? Well, if at all. <laughs> if at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like uh I'm a bit of a caveman to these guys. <laughs> I'm a bit of a caveman, so um, I guess like LinkedIn would be the place yeah, okay. to find me. Yeah, really. yeah. So, uh, to be honest, I don't have Twitter. I don't use Instagram either. Um, so yeah, LinkedIn guys. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> my, name, my LinkedIn name is, yeah. is is my real name, which is Jack Thomas. Um, and but there's gonna be a few Jack yeah, Thomas in there. So uh, so uh, <laughs> so uh, 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 give them one identifier. Do you know where your location is right now? Set to yeah, I'll give you quite a few guys. Yeah. So I studied at. Uh, two universities. The university that's mainly associated with my profile is the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. And then, yeah, my location is uh, Buenos Aires. So and you can't miss me. I've got a big beard and a big smile. So you can't miss me. Go, uh, <laughs> go follow him there. Thank you so much. No worries. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes for every weekly episode that I publish on Monday mornings. Hope you have a great day.